The Great Bible Reset is a podcast devoted to counteracting the great economic reset of Klaus Schwab using Bible lessons and theory. Thank you to boomers-alive.com for sponsoring this podcast and the Kingsway Classical Academy. This week, we are continuing our study on the great books of Western civilization and their effect on our current economical and spiritual crisis. And now your host, Oliver Woods. Welcome, everybody. This is the greatbiblereset.com, where we emphasize and believe that the only remedy to the judgment of God that has befallen America is a recommitment, both individual and national, to the law of God, and specifically to that original set of laws known as the Book of the Covenant uh, in Exodus 20 through 24, right in the very heart of the Book of Exodus. This is the Ten Commandments in chapter 20, and then three chapters of case law illustration of those commandments in the next three chapters. And we're studying these through the lens of the classical authors to gain insight as to how we got off track. Where did we get off track and into this terrible mess we find ourselves in? And last week we looked at how Dante gave us uh, what might be considered a power religion in a revitalized Roman Empire with Virgil as his guide through hell and purgatory. And this week we've been discussing Marsiglio of Padua. It's kind of the opposite extreme of a more of a privatized religion um, based on disengagement from the secular world, which had been a foundation for that had been laid by Francis Assisi during this period. And Marsiglio said, um, and and this is a quote, he said, concerning the institution of the Mosaic law, we have not here to do not even with the political precepts which such laws provide for the affairs of this life. So that's pretty blatant, you know, uh, uh, discarding laying aside of the the Mosaic law and represents a a really radical withdrawal from the world as a whole. So our guest today is uh, Reverend Pastor Paul Michael Raymond. He's back with us today, who uh, is pastor of a church in Appomattox, Virginia, that is having significant impact on the civil structures structures of the community, uh, including the courts. And um, he's president of New Geneva Christian Leadership uh, College and Seminary there, and and he also teaches uh, great books at Kingsway Classical Academy. So um, maybe we could just start out briefly, Pastor Raymond, and and kind of get your assessment of of, um, of Marsiglio, Marsiglio of Padua, and his impact on the world, you know, not only then, but even, even today. Well, the question I think that we have to begin with is when spe- people speak about the law, it's, it's, it's never a law or no law, but actually whose law. And whenever you put law into the hands of man, who is by nature fallible and fickle and fallen, y- you get a, a hodgepodge of, of ideas and philosophies wrapped into what they believe is the law. And and so the only standard which is going to bring true justice, true righteousness and equity is a standard which comes not from man, but from a divine source. And that divine source, of course, is God. And it is not, it is not something that we should take lightly as far as the law is concerned. God put the law in the scriptures and preserved the scriptures for us 
to learn of the law. And as you, as you mentioned in your opening statement, the, the case laws of scripture in, or, in order for us to understand how do we bring justice into the realm of the civil society, into this uh, cultural structure, how do we, we bring ju- justice and righteousness you can only you can only go by what God says because that is the perfect standard. So whenever whenever you have any of these individuals, whether it's Dante or or Marsiglio or or any of these brilliant and and you know it's funny when I when I talk to my students in Kingsway, I I make sure I tell them I said these these men were brilliant. They were not they were not they were not stupid men or or imbeciles. They were brilliant men thinking deeply, but they were always going off the rails when they failed to focus on the law of God. So whenever, for instance, if Marsiglio's position is, well, we're going to set up some uh, church um, or civil courts, rather, uh, instead of having ecclesiastical courts, uh, and those courts are not going to follow the standard of biblical law, you're always going to find difficulty. You're always going to find uh, some sort of a perversion of law. And what happens is because, and as you mentioned also in your opening statement about the idea of covenant, you cannot get away from the covenant relationship that mankind has, whether it's, whether it's Christian man or Muslim man or Buddhist man, it doesn't matter because all man, mankind is created in the image of God. It doesn't really matter what their philosophy is. They're still in a covenantal relationship, a creative covenantal relationship. And they are then going to be held accountable and responsible to that relationship. When they violate that relationship, which is a law abiding relationship, a legal relationship, because covenant is really based in law. You, they become covenant breakers, and then God brings judgment. And when a nation decides to break covenant with God, God brings judgment on the nation, not only an individual, but upon a nation. So we have to get back to the fundamentals of order, the fundamental structure of order, which can only be safeguarded by using the law of God. I think we also discussed at one point, or maybe you and I, uh, Dennis, talked one time, Dr. Woods, we, we talked one time about, about uh, well, how do we apply some of these antiquated ancient law systems to our modern society? And that really is the question. But let's at least ask the question and try to pound out some of the details. If there's going to be restitution, uh, we're not going to pay restitution back with uh, four four sheep or a, or a, a goat or a donkey. No, we we have to have a monetary or some sort of a restitution process that is uh, compatible with the biblical model. And then at least we're we're going in the right direction. So so I think that's really the issue. So whenever we we read about these men who are deep thinkers. Uh, obviously deep thinkers, we, we have to then find, well, where did they err? Where, where did they go wrong? And you'll find inevitably they've always gone wrong by using either a, a natural law theory or a 
human common sense theory rather than God's law or the blend of a little bit God, a little bit man, which is always going to uh, deteriorate eventually, as we see even today in our in our own United States. Yes. Yeah. Well, let's 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 look at the book of Psalms and and um, and how that relates and how that ties in, especially Psalm two or maybe Psalm one and two. I know I used to think of the Psalms as um, strictly kind of a personal devotional book, you know, but uh, it uh, it really I think relates to uh, to the whole spectrum of life. Um, but um, in Psalm one and two, I think are are um, in a sense, uh, introductory to the entire Psalter. Can you talk about that a little bit? Um, uh, how these two Psalms tie together and how they relate to the entire book of Psalms and, and uh, to what we've been talking about in terms of the law of God and yes. as it relates yes. to nations. Yeah. Yes, and, and you are exactly right. The, the Psalter, it's of course divided into five books, but the Psalter's uh, preface, the, the prologue of the, the Psalter is one and two. One and two are separate or should be viewed as separate from the rest of the Psalter because they set the stage for the entire in, entire book, but not only the entire book, not only the entire Psalter, but they set the stage for uh, human the human race. And you're right to say that so many people look at Psalm 1 or even the whole of the Psalms as devotional books, and they can be used as such, but they're really books which detail the progression of the kingdom of God and how it is being anticipated in the New Testament when Christ comes as the Nazarite warfaring priest to be victorious over the enemies in time and in history. So when we look at Psalm 1, so often we read this and we say, well, this is about how we are to be devout. We are to be uh, we are to find our our um, obedience, and we are to be pious. And when we read, "Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful," we say, "Well, I, I, that's going to be me. That's going to be me." But the bottom line here is, this is all about the Christ. He is the blessed one. He is the man, Christ Jesus. He is the one who perfectly walked not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stood in this, the way of sinners, nor sat in the seat of the scorners. And his delight was in, notice, his delight was in the law of Yahweh, and in his law he thought upon it day and night, because that was his organizing principle. That was what organized his entire life, and that is what he understood, rightly so, as the organizing principle of humanity and nations. And we see that fleshed out later on after he is established as the blessed man in Psalm 2. But if you continue reading, it says that if he is going to follow the law, meditate upon the law, regurgitate the law of God in his mind and go over it and, and understand it, then he will be like a tree, and he is the tree of life, of course, planted by the rivers of, of water, and those would be the living water, and that will bring about his fruit in his season. So that's the, the, the result, the, the prospering result of meditating and applying the law of God. And then, of course, there's the, the opposite side, the ungodly. They're not like that. 
They're like the chaff which the wind drives away, and they won't be able to stand in the judgment. They'll be destroyed under the judgment, under the wrath of God, and the sinners will not be allowed into the congregation of the righteous. So the Lord, it says here, for Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly will perish. That is the, the opening statement of the Psalter, of all of the books, the 150 books of the Psalter. But it dovetails almost immediately into the next section, which is Psalm 2, which now, looking at the Christ as the Blessed One, what is his role nationally or universally, let's say that, uh, or uh, globally? And of course, you have David writing this, and and this is just incredible, because you you have the the king of Israel, a man man of, of warfare, uh, a man of devotion, uh, a man of, of of spycraft and counsel, and he is looking at the mass of human race. He's looking at the human race, and he is absolutely astonished to the point where he's asking, "Why?" Or let me let me put it this way: Why in the world? What were these peeping people thinking? Why are these nations, and the word heathen there is actually the word nations, or, or it implies nations. Why do the, the pagan nations, the people of these nations, rage and the people imagine vanity against the king and his Messiah? That's basically it. And what David is saying is, this is entirely insane. This is total insanity that that it's 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 like it's like a mouse fighting a gorilla. You you and not even a great example, but you get the point. Why do these people think that they can break the bands of 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 Yahweh, break the law of Yahweh? And that's what it's saying. The kings of the earth set themselves and the ruler take counsels together. These rulers are counseling together in a conspiratorial fashion to break uh, the bands of Christ, the law of Christ. They they are seeking to come against the Lord and his anointed or his Messiah, and they're saying, no more law. That's what verse 3 says. Let us break their bands. Let us break the law, uh, those things that restrict us. And what's insane in David's mind, and what should be insanity in our mind, is the law the the obedience to the law of God and and let me just give a, a, a parenthesis here. We're not saved by keeping the law. That's an impossibility. So the law has a pedagogical driving force upon us to find our salvation by the grace of God alone in Christ. But once we're on the other side of salvation, the law becomes our light and our lamp. This is what David is saying in one nineteen and in Psalm nineteen. So, so we we recognize that we're saved by grace, not by the keeping of the law. And yet, once we're saved, the law is now not only our light and our our life and, and the organizing structure of of everything. It is also what sets us at liberty, and that's important because what that means is if we are denying the law or trying to break the bands of God, break the bands of God's law, what we're really doing is we're seeking to be in bondage. And that is that is the entire message of Scripture, where the Spirit of the Lord is. And that means where the Word of God is, where the Lagos of God is, and His law, there is liberty, there's freedom, not bondage. So David is saying, this is just crazy. This is just absolutely crazy. Let, it, let, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords. 
And that's what man does. That's what nations try to do. And they'll adopt all kinds of things. They'll do all these gyrations, uh, legal gyrations to to bring about some sort of a law system, which they believe is just, which we realize is not just. And it always deteriorates into tyranny. But then, of course, the response is wonderful. And that's good for us because then we're encouraged. He that sits in the heavens laughs and has them in derision. He mocks them. He mocks them. But but notice here, and this is the point I, I believe uh, Dr. Woods are trying to make. He said his king, verse, verse 6, he sets his king, this is Christ the king, upon his holy hill of Zion. And the point is, because of the victory of Christ, he is gaining the inheritance. And the inheritance, if you look at verse 8, is the uttermost parts of the earth. It is the entire global structure of the world, including men and nations. And it is a declaration to mankind, the kings of the earth, the rulers of the earth. This is a national, a national declaration. So he says at the end, if you know, if you don't follow me, I'll destroy you. That's verse nine. And then he says, you should be wise instead of being foolish and, and seeking to to bring about a vain thing, you should be wise, you kings of the earth, and be instructed. Otherwise, I will destroy you. You have to kiss the sun. You have to reconcile with the sun while you're on the way, unless you perish. And that's the message of the nation. So it is, it is, the, it is the, the, these two Psalms that set the stage for the entire Psalter. Yeah, you know, I think uh, some people tend to... Uh push this into the future you know it's uh, some uh, like a future kingdom perhaps uh, um this this psalm too though is it is quoted a couple of times in the book of acts and is there is there evidence in the scripture that that indicates that this is applying to this current age you know the the church age rather than you know the sweet by and by maybe the, the future yes, 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 yes. yeah and 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 this is this is really what has destroyed the church Everyone, every church leader, every church congregant functions in their life eschatologically. Your eschatology will dictate whether you know it or not, whether you're conscious about it or not, it dictates your actions. If you believe that the world will go to hell in a handcart and then Christ has to come again to redo what he has already done to save his people, to bring order to the society, to bring order to the global order. Uh, then you'll function that way, and you'll you'll not fight for the for the cultural dominion that Christ has given us in Matthew twenty eight and in Deuteronomy in uh, in uh, Genesis chapter one. So so that that's a real problem, and that's why we're in the mess we're in. But if you th- if you think about this very simply, not to get into the weeds here, everything in the Old Testament was anticipatory; it was anticipating the Christ. Every prophecy in the Old Testament, speaking about the Messiah, was fulfilled with the coming of Christ at his advent. So what he says to the disciples at the Last Supper, he tells them, I will no, I will no longer eat or drink with you after this night until it, I do this in the kingdom. When the kingdom comes, I'll now eat and drink of this of this passover the first thing he does 
is he eats and drinks after the resurrection and their eyes are open. Well, what are their eyes open to? Their eyes are open that the kingdom has come. Now, it's come in principle. It's come in power at Pentecost because that's when he empowers the church. At his 40-day sojourn after the resurrection, he's spying out the territory just like Joshua's spies. He's spying out Canaan because Joshua's spies were spying out Canaan in order to conquer Canaan uh, Canaan and take dominion in Canaan. And that's what Christ is doing for the 40 days. He could have just ascended right away. But at his ascension, he receives the kingdom. And you see this in Daniel chapter 7. He receives the kingdom and power and glory and the dominion. But what's really fascinating is everything that Adam failed to do, Christ accomplishes. Adam was the gardener. He was to take dominion. He was to subdue. Okay, he was to cultivate Eden. He fails. As soon as Christ resurrects, Mary sees him and she thinks he's the gardener. Why? Because he's going to fulfill what Adam failed to fulfill. He's going to recultivate, is where we get the word culture from. He's going to cultivate the garden. He's going to cultivate the global order that Adam failed to do. So his, his realm is global. And it is now. The kingdom is now. It's not coming. Now, it's coming in its perfection, but it's now. Jesus does not have to come again to fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament. Otherwise, he failed. So, so when we think about it very simply, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. He's doing it now. He doesn't have to come back again to do it. Now, some people think that, well, Christ has to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Well, wait a minute. Isn't that thinking too physically and earthly? Are we not the temple of God? Are we not, as the Apostle Paul says, are we not the temple of God? Is not Christ the chief cornerstone of the temple, that spiritual, supernatural temple? Well, of course. So when we when we uh, make the physical, the substance, we fail to understand the real substance. And the substance is the body of Christ, is the temple of God. And, and that's where a lot of these um, uh, ministers and congregates misunderstand what God is teaching eschatologically. When John the Baptist entered into the scene, he was declaring, repent. That's what the law says. You're a sinner. You need to repent. He's paving the way for the Christ. And we see, again, the, the connection between the law and the Messiah. Now, of course, the law only has condemning power. So John had to be beheaded, just like the law's power to condemn us is now taken away. He, the law's head is taken from us, and we have a new head, which is Christ. And yet we're still lovers of the law because the law is holy, just, and good. The commandment is holy, just, and good. Now, in that regard, going back to the law, people always like to use this idea of, well, uh, Paul told the Corinthians that um, we're no longer, we're not, not under the law. And that's exactly right. We're not under the ceremonial law, like ancient Israel. And if you understand in, in, the, in the context of the book of Galatia, they were all trying to keep the ceremonial law to keep right. So Paul is going to them and saying, no, 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 you're no longer under the ceremonial law obligations. You're no longer under the con condemnation of the law's uh, power. You're now free in Christ, but now you're free to be at liberty under law. And these are the things that 
we don't we don't hear anymore in the church. We we just don't hear this anymore. But if you go back to the age of of the Reformation or the age of uh, of the Puritans, that's all you would hear. That's all you would hear. So so we have a real dearth of understanding, biblical understanding, in our day today, which is really fueling the depravity of our nations and the apostasy of our churches. Yeah, it's interesting that um, Psalm, uh, Psalm 2 that you were talking about there, that you know, the starts right out with the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. And that's, that's actually applied by, um, I think it's Peter's second sermon in Acts to, uh, to the, the um, conspiracy of Rome and the Jews against Christ, you know, so it places it squarely in our, in our current age. Um, do you see this as kind of a plumb bob for evaluating our views of prophecy? Uh, is, it, is this kind of a, an overview of this, this Psalm 2, an overview of history, history or historiography where God lays out what's going to happen that we can, we can say, okay, this, this doesn't fit, you know, um, you know, for example, you look at the book of Revelation, the very first chapter, which introduces the book of Revelation. It says um, that it's from Jesus Christ, who is the uh, ruler of the kings of the earth. And he has made us to be a kingdom. And that was written first century, well, present tense in the first century to seven churches that existed at that time. And saying that at that, that, that time they were a kingdom under under Christ the king. But, uh, well, if you, yeah, if you think about it, if you think about it, when we look at the Old Testament, we find the entirety of the New Testament in it. It's contained. All the, all the parables that Christ spoke are in the Old Testament. And then when we study the New Testament, it's just parroting the Old. Really, you can find everything that the New Testament is talking about in the Old and the Old Testament in the New. So they're really one cohesive whole. So when when we read Psalm 37, and we, we, we recognize that this is talking about a total takeover by the Christ over the wicked of the world, and then we find it quoted in the New Testament as a fulfillment because of the coming of the Christ, we have to say, well, okay, these prophecies of the Old Testament are now being fulfilled by the coming of Christ. He doesn't have to come again to do this. He's doing it now. Okay. He's doing it now. And we need to take our marching orders from that eschatological position. Remember, Christ is the eschatological Christ. There's no other age. Uh, 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 there's not going to be a new New Testament or a new, new whatever. No, this is it. It is finished. Everything that was prophesied in the old is finished in the coming of Christ, and he is going to now bring it to its culmination. And that's what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the culmination when he puts down all rule and all authority under his feet because he is the sovereign king. So so I, I think, and, and you know, a lot of, a lot of people, uh, they cavalier, they're very cavalier, and they say, well, as far as the last days are concerned, uh, I'm a pan uh, millennial. I think it'll all pan out. Or uh, I, I, I don't worry about that. I don't worry about those things. It'll all work out or whatever. Well, that, that's not a good answer. In fact, everyone, everyone is functioning, as I said before, according to their idea of the end. 
And when you read in the Acts of the Apostles, they were saying in the last days, it's here. These are the last days. Okay, these are the days that were prophesied in the Old Testament. And God gives these time, time stamps for us to recognize where we are in time and in, and in history. So, so it's, it's, we, we need to start looking very carefully at the scriptures. Look, Christ is quoting all from the Old Testament. Uh, he says that I am in the Old Testament in Luke chapter 24, verse 44, that you have seen me in the law of Moses and in the Psalms and in the prophets. All of these things concern me has, and all anticipating me. And now I'm here. There's, there, and that's it. And now and now it's up to the army of God, the church of Jesus Christ, as the, the temple of God, as the kingdom of God, as the army of God, to go out and to bring justice to the land according to the gospel. And the gospel is always referred to as not just the gospel, but it's the gospel of the kingdom, which presupposes a king and a law, a king's law. So we have to start thinking a little more deeply. Instead of 15-minute anecdotal sermons, we need to be teachers from the pulpits. We need to ex uh, expound the scriptures faithfully, comparing scripture with scripture, using the scriptures alone as defining each of their terms and commenting on different passages. And that's the only way we'll understand anything. And, and, and I think, unfortunately, part of the problem is the seminaries, for the most part, aren't teaching those things. Mm. Well, this is this has been very interesting. Let me let me just ask you one more question as we kind of wrap this up, uh, Pastor Raymond. But I think a lot of times uh, people have taken this psalm as um, as a missionary promise, you know, where it says, "Ask of me, I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance, the very ends of the earth as thy possession." And it, it's 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 often thought of in the context of leading individuals to Christ and. Uh, uh, and uh, a kind of a personal promise, but it's it's really a, a it's it's God's it's not it's God's promise to Christ at that point, isn't it? And um, and then it's and then you would you would so you would expect maybe like an altar call, you know, uh, to individuals to receive Christ into their heart and so forth. But it but the the, the whole uh, closing portion here is a challenge to kings, you know. Uh, Therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. So. How, how do you see that tying into the, to the, let's say the Great Commission? Um, and uh, Right, right. Well, no, I, I think you touched on something that's, that's really important, uh, dre dreadful, but important. You cannot isolate passages of Scripture. You, you've got to take it in its whole, in its entirety. So anyone that says that verse 8 is, is speaking to us, it's, as you said, God, the Father, within the within the Godhead, making this covenant plan between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, God is speaking to, to Christ, not speaking to us. And the promise is, you go and you do this, and I will give you the heathen as your inheritance. You will be the fundamental principal inheritor. And then we, as the children of God, as the, as the elect of God, we then inherit it because we're married to Christ and then we become part of that inheritance. But actually, actually, this is speaking about Christ. In fact, in the, in the book of Hebrews, it's God speaking to God, where God the Father says to Christ that, that oh, uh, thy throne, O God, this is God calling Jesus God, 
Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. So, so, so we have to read in context. We can't just pull things out like, like uh, I'm sure later on we'll be talking about Matthew chapter 24. You can't just pull that whole chapter out of context and say, this is talking about the end of the world. So let's now make some fabrication, this eschatological fabrication out of a, a, a passage or passages that have nothing to do with our fabrication. You, you just can't do that. That is perverting the scripture. And that's what Paul warns about. You cannot twist the scriptures. If you start adding or taking away or twisting them or perverting them, then 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 you're you're just destroying people and you're you're blaspheming God and God will not deal with you kindly. Yes, and it's um, it's uh, I guess encouraging. You know, it, I mean, it does talk about the judgment of nations here that uh, those nations that do disobey and uh, will be judged, but. It, it ends on that positive note, you know, how, how blessed are all who take refuge in him and that ultimately God is fulfilling his promise to Christ to give him the nations. And Yeah, and it's funny. It's funny. You just quoted it from the Hebrew, which is wonderful because in your in your version, versions, I, I, for instance, in the King James Version, it says, kiss the son lest he be angry and he perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. It's actually blessed are all they that flee to him for refuge. That's the that's the literal, and that's why we need to, we need to be uh, we need to know the languages uh, because they are very rich. But it, it, you look at the examples of nations in the Old Testament. God's judging nations. He's always judging nations. He's not just judging people. You've got nations which no longer exist because they've been judged. The Roman Empire, for one. The Philistines, the Amorites, the Ammonites, okay, uh, those those nations are gone. So, and the Egyptians, just think about it as a nation. No, you have Egyptian people, but as a, as a as a force, as a as an empire, which is what they were at one point, they're done. They're gone. They'll never be an empire again because God destroyed them way back during Moses's day. So yeah, God is the God of nations. In fact, He's called the King of nations. Why Why would we now just throw that title out the window and not remember it? Because it's because we don't want to believe that God is judging nations. But he is, and we're in the midst of it in the United States of America. In fact, across the entire globe, we're in the midst of an angry God. And we need to do everything we can to uh, to call people to repentance and to call them back to the Christ of God, who is the King of Nations, so that they would perhaps flee from the wrath to come. Yes. Amen. Well, thanks for being with us, Pastor Raymond. Maybe, maybe you can just tell us, you know, a quick summary of uh, how people can find you on the, on the internet and, and what and kind of um, what's going, just a brief summary of what's going on there in, in, in Appomattox, as well as uh, your outreach over into Africa as well, right? Sure. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, you know, it, it's funny uh, in Africa, people are very hungry in America. Not so much so, I guess. But yeah, we, you can reach me uh, through uh, our website, newgeneva.us, or my, my personal email address, pastor at hisglory.us. And we have a, a, a college. We 
confer either associate degrees, even certificates. You can take courses a la carte. We have a seminary, doctorate degree programs and things of that nature. We're very involved in the international community in Ethiopia. We have many friends out there. We've started, we've assisted, and I wouldn't say we started, I guess we did, but we've mostly assisted uh, two seminaries there that are uh, just fledgling seminaries. We're teaching their students there, helping them to understand the Reformed faith and how to how to understand the scriptures. But uh, we're we're embarking on a we're embarking on another uh, project which is quite interesting, which I'm very excited about. I'm just praying that it does find some fruition. Where there are individuals in the international community which are very very interested in structuring an, an international ecclesiastical court. And what and that that and those terms today we don't even know what that means because we're so outside of learning about history. But an ecclesiastical court is a a church court which uses the law of God to bring justice and righteousness and restitution to people that can't find justice in the civil courts. Now, of course, that was very very uh, prominent in Calvin's Geneva and in other places. Uh, it did become a little bit more tyrannical. We're trying to uh, to help people who cannot find proper civil restitution in the civil courts. Of course, any criminality would have to go to the civil court. We give it to the magistrate uh, that way if there's any crimes um, that require uh, those penalties. But at least we're there as ecclesiastical counselors to uh, assist those who are in need. And, and that, that might be uh, coming about in the next uh, 12 months or so. So we're working with an international community there. But anyone that needs to reach me, pastor at hisglory.us. If you have any uh, graduating students from Kingsway, uh, we work together. Uh, we do dual credit. Uh, we don't want to keep a student in college for their whole life, we want them out there and making a change in the world according to what God has called them to do. So I appreciate uh, any any questions. You can just contact me there. Okay. Well, thank you. And thanks for being with us today. Um, and uh, you can explore uh, uh, Pastor's um, Great Books course at kingswayclassicalacademy.com as well. So, yeah, thanks for being with us. And look forward to maybe we can explore that and more uh, that ecclesiastical concept, concept, the relationship of church and state more in the future, Pastor Raymond. So uh, so thanks so much. And we'll see you next Tuesday for our um, our next episode. Thank you for listening to today's episode. For more episodes, visit GreatBibleReset.com. And to help support the podcast and Kingsway Classical Academy, visit our sponsor at Boomers-Alive.com. To learn how to get your high school diploma and bachelor's degree on the same day, visit KingswayClassicalAcademy.com and save up to $100,000 on college tuition. 